for the Redskins with RG3 out of the shotgun and the ball. It's still on the ground. The Seahawks get in there. I think they recover. They do. Robert Griffin the third cannot get back to the ball. He stays on the ground. Coming out of the pile is Clinton McDonald. And the Seahawks have it down on the Redskins five-yard line. Oh, what a turn of events for the Seahawks. What is up, Football Nation? Welcome to the Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters Podcast, episode 35, January 9th, 2013. We are just days away from what many consider to be the best weekend of the NFL season, the divisional round. We're going to get into the divisional round in a second. We're also going to talk about Wild Card Week and the NCAA Championship game that was so exciting last night. <laughs> Um, also, we have email later, and one last thing as always, want to thank our guests from last week, our boy Dave Damashek, for being on the show. Uh, those shows right after Christmas and right after New Year's are always hard to book, and uh, Carrie Byrne and Dave Damashek get huge ups for being our guests on those busy weeks. Um, as far as, I just say we get right into it. Let's do it because it's going to be a long open. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, so yeah, let's, let's do just it. Let's just do it. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> All right, well, to get right into it, basically what we're going to do today is instead of having three separate things each, we're going to have three things that are the same because basically there's three big things to talk about. And instead of trying to force six things, there's just three obvious ones. And the first one is last night Alabama won their third national championship in four years, becoming only the third team. The others being Nebraska of the 90s and Notre Dame of the 40s. Uh, to win three national championships in four years in the uh, pole era, which started roughly in the 30s. Uh, so congratulations to Nick Saban, who I mentioned I'm not a big fan of last week. But right. you have to give credit where credit is due. Anytime a team can do something only two other teams have done in over 90 years of football or so, uh, you have to tip your cap, and Alabama clearly was the better team last night. And they won by 28 points, and it never felt that close. No, not at all. Uh, right from that the botched call, I guess you could call it, uh, the game was over. I mean, it was only a 14 nothing game, or a 14 nothing to be game at that point. But it, it never felt close. They, they felt like there were teams in two different leagues. And uh, really, the game became more about... Brent Musburger and uh, Kirk Herbstreet filling time. Yeah, talking about quarterbacks' girlfriends and how hot they are. So, and they're hot. Yeah, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, that was. The- it was just a game where one team was better than the other team, and they got going early and they imposed their will. And whenever that happens, you're in a lot of trouble. Notre Dame was gonna need a big break. 
in that game to be competitive to something that would slow either mentally or physically Alabama down in some way. That could have been the punt bobble, maybe. Uh, maybe, but it just didn't turn out that way. And what you ended up with was a basically a blowout of of epic proportions. Really, I mean, it was. After watching that game, I think if they play that game ten times, I think Alabama wins nine of them. And nine and a half, maybe. Yeah, and in the game that Notre Dame would win, they would need that punt return and everything else to go right. Because say they get that punt return and make it seven seven, unless Atlanta, Alabama forgets how to play football, that that outcome's not going to change. And just shocking numbers across the board. I mean, five hundred twenty nine yeah, total yards of offense against what the was best defense in the, the country. best defense yeah. in the country. Two hundred and sixty four passing, two hundred and sixty five rushing. You can't be more balanced than that. Uh, two Alabama players, Lacey and Yeldon, went over 100 yards rushing. Lacey had 140 yards and a, a gorgeous touchdown where he just tapped a circle button and made yeah. an unbelievable spin move on a guy at about the four-yard line and kind of leading in. That was right before halftime. He made them look, Lacey in particular, made them look like they didn't know how to tackle. That was the, If you told someone that had never watched a game or didn't follow any stats that that was the number one defense in the country, they'd, they'd be shocked. They tackled poorly. They didn't do anything really well. And, and a real tough night for Teo. Yeah, bad night. Uh, and everyone who made the Notre Dame season what it was, it just wasn't there last night. Not at all. Uh, Golson forced the ball down the field a lot. There was a fourth and five I'm thinking of where they only needed five yards, and they ran three outs, and then they had one guy come in around the five-yard mark. That got eaten up by the linebackers. So he's got to throw the ball 45 yards down the field on a fourth and five, and he's throwing in to man coverage against the best cornerback in the nation, and the best cornerback in the nation knocked the ball away. I saw a uh, a tweet that said something along the lines of, Golson is really good at throwing the ball out of bounds. And it's what he was doing all night. He had, he had nowhere to put it. Uh, just dominated effort from start to finish. And uh, we could have seen this coming. And... I'm not going to say that I was right and everybody else is wrong because, as Jay Moore likes to say, I didn't put my name on it or anything like that. But smarter people than I could have seen this coming, and that kind of I touch on that a little bit in my one more thing later on. All right, well, let's move on to what I have called the worst wild card weekend since I have been watching wild card weekends. Yeah, I mean, I was doing work around my house, so it's possible I would have been pulled away anyway, but. I watched a lot of the Houston-Cincinnati game. You just, don't get pulled away when the Bills are coming back from 35-3. Yeah, right, right. You don't get pulled away when the Saints and the Lions are in a really exciting offensive shootout. You make that work around the house, go away, and come back for another day. But there was just no reason not to be no. pulled away. Really, all four of the games basically stunk. Uh, it started with Texans and Bengals, which was really just no boring. fun at all. Yeah. It was very boring. Andy Dalton had negative six yards passing in the first half. Uh, the Bengals' only offensive touchdown, or they had no offensive touchdowns. Their only touchdown in the game was a pick six. Right. At that point, maybe you thought, okay, this game could be in question, but they couldn't put anything together on offense. Never did you feel like they would get in the end zone, and the Texans basically cruised to uh, what is a rematch against the Patriots, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, later that night, the Packers really dismantled a Christian Ponderless uh, Vikings team. Uh, the Vikings sort of weathered the storm with Percy Harvin, and they did that because Adrian Peterson was able to put them on their back 
Without Percy Harvin. Without Percy right, Harvin. Right. They weren't able. Adrian Peterson is only one man, and 22 carries for 99 yards is pretty impressive considering his quarterback went 11 for 30 for 180. In the first drive, maybe two drives of that game, you watched some of the things they were going to do with Joe Webb. It looked like they were just going to run like basically like a high school slash college offense where they were running like option plays, and Peterson was running through big holes. And I thought, well, if they're going to give up six yards every carry, they can win this way. They can win with Joe Webb never having to throw. But in the few times he did have to throw, he looked terrible. He dropped back and just threw a couple of passes straight up in the air at times, trying to avoid pressure. Just He looked pretty out of, out of sorts and overmatched. And, and Aaron Rodgers did close. what Aaron Rodgers does, 22-33, 275 yards. He had one touchdown. Uh, there was two two rushing touchdowns in the red zone. You know, this was a game that was twenty four to three with three minutes left. So it's not even as close as the twenty four to ten score looks. Right. So Yeah. yeah. Uh Green Bay we'll we'll talk about them in a minute. It'd be interesting because a lot of times you think that the bye week teams could have a little rust to work through, but most of the teams moving on didn't have to face many challenges in the games that they played. So. Yeah, and that was certainly the case with the Ravens, who pretty much dismantled the Colts. Yep. Uh, you heard Kerry J. Byrne on this show a couple weeks ago say that statistically the Colts were one of the worst playoff qualifiers since he's been tracking these statistics. Um, and the Ravens maybe got a little bit of a boost from Ray Lewis playing his last home game. Um, I certainly thought it was pretty cool to see him come out of the tunnel one last time. And yeah. Do, do what only Ray Lewis can kind of do without you rolling your eyes. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it's someone else doing that, Dancing you're kind around, of just like, yeah. oh, come on, quit trying to be Ray Lewis, right? That's Ray Lewis. Sure, thing. right. And um, Icky Woods maybe did it before. Yeah, well, yeah. That, well, that was after touchdowns. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the Icky Shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, infamous here in Buffalo. Uh, but um, I don't know. I don't have much more to say about that game. No, they weren't that, they weren't that good. And then the final game was – a potentially the most interesting, the Redskins. Yeah, it was a, it was a good game until uh, what disaster. everyone's talking about yeah. is the disaster of RG three partially tearing his ACL. I believe they're calling it now. And yeah, the rumors are partially torn ACL, partially torn. Is it LCL? LCL, MCL, one of them. I think it's LCL. But uh, yeah, maybe rushed back a, a lot little bit of too testing quick. Had to be and, done. A lot of question marks about the communication between Dr. James Andrews and Mike Shanahan. A lot of question marks about the FedEx field uh, where Adrian Peterson tore his knee last year. Yeah. Now maybe RG3 has done the same. And But basically um, that's it. I mean, these games, even if you talk about the BCS games, the story of all these games are really not the games themselves. It's, uh, I mean, it's not because it was like a good game. Like last night's game became about the quarterback's girlfriend. Uh that game you're talking about now is about an injury more so than it was about how well Seattle played or how well Marshawn Lynch played. So hopefully this week we'll have a little bit better matchups, and that's our last thing this week is looking ahead a little bit here. And I guess we can do our predictions on this show because we don't have a segment yes. for it. But uh, first game Saturday, Ravens-Broncos. I've said many, Love many the times, here. yeah, the Broncos, just the least flawed team. And they, they're pretty strong in areas too. They rush the quarterback well with Von Miller. They've got a great all-time great quarterback in Peyton. And uh, Demarius Thomas just makes circus catches every single week. And it seems like the game plan for the Ravens would be something that they've fought doing all year, and that's feeding Ray Rice as much as possible and trying to keep Peyton Manning off the field. Yeah, because I don't know how they're going to stop him. 
Uh, the Ravens' defense is – when you talk about the Ravens, it's always about their defense. They're the 17th and 20th in passing yardage and rushing yardage. So this isn't maybe uh, – It's not the Super Bowl team, that's no, for sure. No, that's for sure. And they've never been overly great against the pass. I just don't know how they how they cover. In this. I think they got guys out there gutting it out, Ray Lewis being one of them sure. as well. Um, I think if this wasn't the playoffs, guys like Lewis and Suggs might not be on the field. I don't know as much about Suggs' injury as Lewis's, but he wore a really big arm brace to play pretty well in the game that he played last week. But Yeah, I imagine they'll come out fiery. I imagine they'll be intense for as long as they can, but I think eventually Peyton wins out and the offense is just too much for them. And Von Miller harasses And like the other Flacco. AFC game, which we'll talk about in a minute, this is a rematch of a game that we've seen not that long ago that was in Baltimore, and Peyton Manning had his way, and they won 34-17. Yeah, a game that wasn't even that so close. So what is Baltimore going to do in Denver that they couldn't do at home? Baltimore didn't score a touchdown until the fourth quarter in that game. So that's been their problem all year long. Uh I wonder a little bit if Baltimore maybe looks for another quarterback this year. Maybe yeah, it went from paying the man in the press conferences earlier in the year to haven't heard much about paying the man recently. That's a pretty talented offense there with Ray Rice and uh, Torrey Smith looks like a guy that could be a player, and they got a nice tight end in Pitta. But Flacco not getting it done. All right, so 8 o'clock at night on Fox, the Packers and 49ers, a really interesting matchup. Um, I talk a little bit about this game with Mike Tanier later in the show, and I basically asked him, and I'll ask you, Don, is it oversimplifying it by f- for me to say that I just don't believe Colin Kaepernick is ready to beat Aaron Rodgers in a playoff game? No, I, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because I don't think San Francisco – I mean, you're not talking about a guy that's a slight downgrade from Aaron Rodgers. You're talking about a guy that – is not nearly the quarterback Aaron Rodgers is yet. Aaron Rodgers is no worse than the fourth best quarterback in the league. Yeah. Depending on how you want to order Manning, Brady, Breeze, and Rodgers, those are the best four quarterbacks in the league. And Dave Damashek, who we've had had on the program last week, has said he thinks Aaron Rodgers will retire as the best quarterback ever. Which is possible. I believe that's his quote, something along those lines. But, uh... No, Ka- Kaepernick's, I don't think, there yet. And like I said on the other podcast, you can kind of beat him in two ways. If, if you get ahead in your Green Bay, I don't see how San Francisco comes back. If you get behind in your Green Bay, you just watched New England, unsuccessfully, albeit, but come from behind in a regular season San Francisco, uh, game against San Francisco where it was one of those games where if that game had an extra five minutes, New England was going to win that game. They just were moving the ball at will. Unfortunately, they gave up a big play on special teams. Right. So and special teams maybe is somewhere where the 49ers can have an edge maybe. Sure. Make a couple plays there maybe that can help them but in my mind I just don't see maybe it's too simple of a view but I hear all about how this is a quarterback driven league and if that's the case and I sort of believe that I just even with the home field advantage I don't see Colin Kaepernick beating Aaron Rodgers in a playoff game. And if he does, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong next week on the show. And I looked it up. We moved along a little bit quick. But Joe Flacco, who has kind of beaten up on, even in the win last week, he completed 12 passes. I mean, Ray Rice didn't have a great game. I don't know. That game was all about the Colts not being ready, I think. So, yeah, moving on to the third game of the week, 
Uh, I don't have it in front of me. It's the hardest one. It's Seattle, oh, Seattle and Atlanta. And, right. Um, I definitely see some disadvantages for Seattle here. Uh, they played... Most notably the venue, right? Yeah, the venue is the first one. I mean, Atlanta's 7-1 and one at home. Uh, Seattle's 3-5. Three and 3-5 three and during the regular season, although they did get a playoff win on the road last week. So right. technically they're 4-5 and five now in the season on the road. Maybe other than Denver, the hottest team in the league, Seattle. Definitely have some momentum. Uh, but how much does travel play in this and the old adage of the West Coast team playing a 1 o'clock, playing a one o'clock game on the East Coast? They were in yep. Washington. They elected to fly back to Seattle, and now they're going to have to fly from Seattle to Atlanta. Yeah, I learned today that they basically, someone in the league, some West Coast team petitioned the league and gave them stats and studies about how West Coast teams do at 1 o'clock. And the league said, okay, we'll we'll stop doing it. And they tried not to do this. But because of San Francisco and Seattle still being in the playoffs, this game either would have... Either San Francisco would have had to play the one o'clock game Which because of the can't TV contract, happen, yeah. right? They're, they'd play their that'd be ten o'clock there, ten o'clock a.m. their time, right? Or Seattle, being the road team, just kind of has to suck it up. So I mean, bad, but bad it's break a really, for them. It's but. a really tough game to call, and you know, my gut tells me Atlanta's going to win because every they've got the bull. If anyone has bulletin board material in this league, it's them. Thirteen and three, seven and one at home. Everyone's doubted them all season long. Everyone's questioned them. You know, maybe the biggest in a really big game they blew out the Giants, kind of dismantled their season. Even people that don't doubt them a little bit are probably like, "Okay, we've seen this before." Right now, do something in the playoffs, and it's this week. Yep, this is the week that has killed them. They haven't lost. Um, an NFC Championship game since they lost to Philadelphia when Philadelphia. Is that even right? Yeah, that's right. When Philadelphia lost the Super Bowl to um, New, New England. England. So, I mean, that was under a completely different regime and sure. different coaches. But, I mean, they had the stigma of being a team that chokes in the playoffs. Under the Smith-Ryan regime, they have choked every time. But still my gut, I I lean towards the Falcons here, but I could really see this game going either way. Yeah, I actually went with Seattle in this game when we were doing our picks on the other podcast. My thought here is uh, Seattle can kind of beat you just by not making mistakes. Marshawn Lynch is playing the best football of his career, and that defense is as good as any in the league. So Russell Wilson can do some nice things, but I think in, in a game like this, you just tell him, just don't lose it. You know what I mean? Make some plays with your feet. Make smart smart throws, and it's kind of what he's done all year. He's been a real efficient guy. If you're a fantasy player, he's probably not been a fantasy star for you, but he's just a guy that doesn't make a lot of mistakes, makes some plays with his feet, and uh, lets Marshawn do the dirty work. And He's capable of that. Tough game, but uh, yeah, coin flip, basically. That's what the Vegas odds have it at, too. And the last game of the week is 4.30 on CBS. Two 12-4 teams that feel very different. Uh, the Texans travel to New England, where despite having the same 12-4 and record and a 6-2 and record away from home, they are 10-point dogs to the Patriots. And uh, I don't think neither of us are very high on the outlook for the Texans this week. No, I like that 10-point. I lay that 10 points every day. I said it in my one more thing last week that they look like a one-and-done team. I didn't think that Cincinnati would beat them. I just didn't think that team was good enough. That looks, That turned out to be right. But... We've said it repeatedly. Unless you want to count the Bengals, uh, Houston has failed every big test they've had this year, and a couple of them miserably uh, against New England, the same New England team they're going to play now. 
and Green Bay. So I I just don't see it. Uh, New England has to stop one guy, and that's Arian Foster. Matt Schaub's not going to beat anybody. If anything, Matt Schaub's the only reason that that Cincinnati game was close is because he almost let he almost beat himself in that game with the pick six. But I just don't see it. Uh, Belichick had two weeks to plan for this game. It's in New England where they don't lose in the playoffs typically, and I I lay ten points all day. Since the New England game, they went into it eleven and one. Their one loss was their first ever game on Sunday Night Football, which they got smoked by Green Bay 42-24. to They lost their second game of the season on the big stage of Monday Night Football, 42-14. to Then they beat Indianapolis at home by 12, and then lost to Minnesota at home, 23-6, to and lost to the Colts on the road. 28-16. And look, those games, the New England game isn't one I guess you can be too mad about. I mean, you get pissed because you lose and it's another test that you failed. But you're still a two-loss team at that point. Then you beat Indy. But now all of a sudden you need a win because Denver's hot. And they blew it. They yep. had to play a game last week that they shouldn't have had to play. Uh, they won it, which maybe is good for their psyche. But they've... I can't see it. I just can't. This, to me, is the one game that I can't see an upset in. And, again, it might be another oversimplification by me, but is Matt Schaub capable of going on the road to New England and beating Tom Brady in a playoff game? I don't think so, and I think he's going to have to. He's going to have to put up points because Foster can't do it by himself. I mean, uh, look at Peterson against Green Bay last week, and that defense, I'm not, I don't have the rankings in front of me, but that defense can't be all that much better than – than uh, New England's, and Peterson's arguably the better running back than Foster. I, it's too much to put on Foster's shoulder. I think at some point Schaub's going to have to sling it and try to win this game, and I just don't trust him enough to do it. All right, so we're both going Patriots-Broncos in the AFC Championship. I'm going Packers and Falcons, and Don is going Packers and Seahawks. Yeah. So we'll see how we do, and we'll be right back with Mike Tanier from Sports on Earth. Our guest today is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of LaSalle University. He is a staff writer for SportsOnEarth.com and has also previously written for Football Outsiders, the New York Times, and has authored his own book, The Phillies Fan Code. Last month, he made his debut on the Sportscasters proper to rave reviews from fans and the hosts. He is making his first appearance on the Football Nation show, a warm Football Nation and Sports Casters, welcome to Mike Tanier. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. I still have a little bit of a Chip Kelly hangover, but I'm but I'm recovering nicely. Yeah. So, what's the latest on the Philadelphia Eagles coaching search? I'm a little behind schedule on on knowing. I don't. I'm not up to the minute right now because I'm working on some things about J.J. Watt and other things. Uh, we've been hearing a lot of names like Bruce Arians and Mike McCoy. And I'll tell you right now, the Philadelphia fan base is, is not thrilled. They had, they had Kelly Mania or Chip Mania or Chip Tasticness or whatever it was. Um, but I think there are so many good candidates coming out here uh, that there's going to be some, something good is going to come of this. And, of course, teams like the Buffalo Bills have already made some interesting decisions. Well, yeah, I did see that you wrote uh, about the Bills hiring 
uh, Marone from Syracuse. You think that that was a, a positive step for a franchise that's been 13 years without a playoff game? I think that they've made the right choice in the end. If you look at some of the people like Chip Kelly, I mean, see Chip Kelly and Gruden and them, the Bills are going to be used as a bargaining chip by these guys, and I think that maybe his name should be bargaining chip because he used the NFL for those purposes. But you know what the Bills need to do, I think, is to get this settled relatively quickly, make a good choice, and think in terms of an up and down franchise decision, not bringing in the next new big paradigm, not trying to pursue you know sort of a flavor of the month, and I think they did that in Marone. They've got somebody whose career was trending upward, somebody who has a lot of diversity of experience, and comes into a position where he's going into a team that has talent to work with. He's not going into a barren cupboard like some of the coaches would be facing when they look at some of these franchises. Yeah, and I mean, everything I've read from former Saints players who worked with him, as he was one of the key ingredients to developing the Saints offense as it is today, John Stinchcomb, I think, said he was the best coach he ever had. Drew Brees had nice things to say. So if I was a Bills fan, I'd be excited about it. Yeah, and you know the old Bill players always have something positive to say. You, you can't always go by that. But you can always look at the results and say, you know, he was part of that team that built that Saints offense that we know now. He was involved in that. He was in those meetings. He brings some of those ideas. And he went into a Syracuse program that didn't have a lot of muscle behind it and, and built that program and made it much more solid under some very unique circumstances in the Big East. Yeah, talk about an empty cupboard when he got there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so last weekend, I don't know about you, but can you remember a kind of more sleepy wild card weekend than the one that we just had? I think I think there was a giant advertisement on our television all weekend <laughs> for not expanding the playoffs. That really was it, where you look at some of these teams and say, well, do they belong? Do they not belong? They're not bringing an exciting brand of football. And it starts with the Vikings, who were probably the most fun team down the stretch. Like, look at this exciting stretch run that we're doing. They're out of gas when they get there. They, they're a team that's not strong enough to, to build a good playoff resume. They have an uh, a, a, um, MVP candidate, and then their backup quarterback is a, as a punt returner. And, and that's what you've got <laughs> in that end. You know, you've got teams like the Texans and Bengals. The Texans have a strong season, but they're trending downward. We don't want to see a lot of these teams. And you're absolutely right. I don't want to see what the next level uh, underneath of these guys are. You know, is it, is it the, the Bears limping along with a coach that they're, like, kind of soured on? I don't want to see that next level of team. But you're right, it was, it was a, a weekend. The, the most exciting stories, unfortunately, talk, are, are talking about a severe injury to a great player and bad grass. I mean, that's yeah. what we're talking about. We're talking yeah. about mud, and that's not a good sign coming off of Wild Card Week. When you were watching that game, were you the Seahawks and Redskins and watching RG3 somewhat struggle through it, were you thinking in the back of your mind, man, they should really take him out, this is slipping away? Obviously not having any idea his knee would buckle on some freak snap, but did you, because it seemed like Aikman was in it early, to, that he would maybe make the change. How did you feel watching the game? Well, i got to be in fairness, I was in Baltimore, so I, it was like very pieces and edgy, like I'm going from point A to point B. Right. I had to watch it on, on tape later to see, so I kind of knew the story when I was watching it. And I respect those that coach's decision. Guys have to play hurt. What shocked me is, you know, it wasn't RG3 playing hurt in a max protect system where they know that they've got to keep him kind of upright. It's him rolling out. It's him doing those option plays. It's him running with the ball on designed running plays. 
after he had already been in their little in their little injury hut, and after he had been wincing and limping, and that's the part that I did not understand. You, you know, you make that choice where you're going to not go with your backup quarterback, and then you make that choice where you're going to kind of uh, you're going to put your head in the sand. And you're going to say, oh well, not only is this still RG three, but limping brace on him taking some really nasty shots from, from defenders. This is the same guy, and we can run our pistol rollout offense. And that's where it, it goes to like closed-mindedness and short-sightedness. This is not smart coaching decisions all the way down. This is putting your head in the sand, and, and that's where I come with there. If he was some kind of pocket passer and they said, well, we're going to go six, uh, you know, two, two tight ends and we're going to block and, and, and do things like that for this guy, it's not. He's not in a position to defend himself in that system because it's not like you can get rid of the ball quickly. You're running, you're on the roll, and you're making decisions whether you're going to hand off and keep the ball and take another hit. That's crazy. Do you think that the teams that won over the weekend uh, maybe weren't tested to the level necessary to be ready to compete against the big boys this weekend? I think the Seahawks were, and I think the Seahawks are, tr- are tested all the time. Um, you know, obviously they had to overcome uh, the healthier, the slightly healthier RG3 early in the game and had to overcome not a great defense but a, a relatively healthy defense. Um, the, the Packers played very, very well, but that's the team where I think we're, we're looking at. that They weren't tested. We, we can't get anything out of what the Packers' defense is at this point from watching that. Maybe we can from going back and watching games like you know where they played much better uh, a few weeks earlier. Um, but, yeah, you, you look at how the Texans played and you look at how the Ravens played, and it's like uh, they grinded out a win against an opponent that wasn't playing particularly well on there and didn't show that high-level playoff caliber play going up against some really strong teams this week, and that's, that's a bad sign for them. Um, and I think that's why you see that. You know, I, I read around, I see this pessimism about how those games are going to go, and, and we're getting kind of gearing up for Manning versus Brady, and, and, yeah, we're gearing up for that right now unless those teams increase their ability and increase their performance from uh, this weekend. Yeah, I can't remember the last time Denver is a 10-point favorite and New England is also a 10-point favorite. Oh, and, and usually, I mean, we know how this game works, and in the sports writing and in the broadcasting game, it's like, well, these guys have momentum. They're coming off a big win, and they fought to get here, and the other team is, is, is you know, is, is uh, lock the momentum, and maybe they're rusty. We can't even do that. You can't straight-facedly go out and play that kind of angle on these games, which I guess is good because usually that's kind of like a very preordained angle. But at the same time, you'd love to be able to say, wow, look at how good the, te- the Texans are. You know, they look solid on defense. We know what they have defensively they did not look solid overall they, yeah no they did not they <laughs> they it's nice when the opposing quarterback and part of this is their defense but it's nice when the opposing quarterback throws for negative six yards in the first half and that's a, it, it was a crazy game and, and i you know i kind of erased the Bengals now and i try and look at what the uh, Texans accomplished, and yeah, they, they we know they can run the ball to a degree. Uh, their passing game, you know, Schaub, I think he had 200 and some yards. It was like the least impressive 260 yards, whatever it was, in which he's not really looking down the field. He's not throwing in rhythm. Uh, he's kind of dumping the ball to what's available. Owen Daniels a lot. Yeah, a lot of Owen Daniels and a lot of, I mean, Casey leaking out of the backfield and Foster leaking out of the backfield. And, and I get that those are the matchups they had, where it's like, well, we have these open matchups because these guys can run away from those linebackers to a degree. But I, I'm seeing not taking shots down the field when there are open guys. And when you get into the red zone, a lot of times those matchups disappear because the defense can play up and do different things. They're not worried about the long ball. You're not going to play, dump the ball to Foster and Daniels and then kick a field goal uh, football and win this week. There's just no way that's going to happen. 
Do you think that the Ravens um, maybe woke up a little bit with the Ray Lewis angle and Ray being back on the team? Do you think that that can maybe be something they can rally around and give them a chance against a so heavily favored Denver team in Denver? They need more than that sort of rally around angle. And, you know, I sat in those press conferences, and, and, and again, you know how the game works. All these guys, that they make the positive quotes, and, and they're happy to see Ray Lewis back, there's no question. But the, that, that pushed angle where it's like, well, did it inspire you? And I kind of watched Anquan Bolden shuffle and say, well, you know, I, I had 150 receiving yards. It wasn't because I was inspired. You know, and Joe Flacco you know, before he, he makes all the positive things, saying, well, yeah, it was, I guess it was kind of cool. And, and Harbaugh saying the same thing, this is not about emotion. What they need to do, they did not play in any way close to what they're capable of playing or in any way well last time they played the Broncos. Uh, they're a better team than that. Uh, but I think that, you know, they have to be firing on all cylinders. And that comes down to offensively. When, it come, when you get right down to it, you know, that offense isn't sitting there saying, oh, good, Ray Lewis is back, look how that affects us. Uh, they've got to be sharper, and, and Flacco's got to be sharper on the deep passes. And late in the game, he kind of did some smart checkdowns, which he hasn't been doing a lot of recently. Ray Rice has to hold on to the football. That was something that was overlooked. Two more fumbles this week. None of that is going to is going to fly against. They could get away with that against the Colts. They cannot get away with that against the Broncos. And that's irrelevant of how many times Ray Ray Lewis yells at them or how many tackles he makes. You mentioned the Seahawks and being a little impressed with them before. Uh, falling 14 nothing down on the road. Uh, but let's assume that Matt Ryan plays the whole game. Uh, they're going inside against the Falcons. It's a 1 o'clock game. They went, ho- they went all the way from Washington back to Seattle. Seattle now are coming to Atlanta. Do uh, you still think the Falcons are vulnerable against the Seahawks, or do you think the Seahawks are going to have a much tougher time this week? I think the Seahawks are going to have a tougher time this week. I, I'm still leaning towards, I have not made my pick yet, I'm leaning towards the Falcons. I think better top-to-bottom top to roster talent in all the little places. I think there's some things they can do defensively uh, where, where uh, I think that they can do some things with their secondary where they can challenge those receivers a little bit, maybe try to really test Russell Wilson. How far has he developed? Can we bait him a little bit? You know, Asante is a good baiter uh, and things like that. Um, and it's another test for that Seahawks defense. It's a, it's a unique matchup where you have one of the best, possibly the best secondary in the NFL, and a lot of young guys playing against a very veteran, very uh, savvy group of receivers who can kind of test exactly how far they've come. You have a, a veterans in, in Gonzo and White, and you've got an athletic uh, beast in Jones where, where they can do a lot of things against that secondary, and that's an interesting matchup. Very close game. The things you mentioned being you know, indoors you know, in Atlanta, I think that's going to make a little bit of a difference far away from Seattle in the 12th man. Very, very close matchup. But I think what I'm looking at, that's the only matchup. Uh, I, I guess also Green Bay-San Francisco is pretty close. But that's the only one where we're looking at and saying, boy, the road team is somebody we can really talk about. Yeah, well, and that leads me into kind of the last thing, and that's the Packers and the 49ers. And is it oversimplifying it to say that I just don't think Colin Kaepernick can beat Aaron Rodgers in a playoff game? I think it is to a degree. I think you're going to find that explosiveness of Aaron Rodgers versus that um, 
that you know that that optiony you know we have to be able to dictate completely for this to work thing uh, where we, that you have with Colin Kaepernick where you you say if if we can control the ball take a ten nothing lead and then we can kind of play all these games with our very diverse running game where we can run some option plays and where it can be scripted um, one of the things I I look at is you know, now that they have Woodson back on defense, now Matthews is at full speed on defense for the Green Bay Packers, they can do some things where they can force the hand of the offense. And I haven't seen a lot of Kaepernick when his hand is being forced, when it's third down and long and he has to make the read. I said the same thing, by the way, about RG3, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, when he's forced to make the read and he has to go to the second receiver. Is he going to go to the second receiver or is he going to start running around? He might be in for a surprise when he starts running around that Clay Matthews you know, can, can chase him and that Woodson is savvy to what he's going to do and can read what he's going to do. And that's why I'm favoring them in this game. And before it becomes a scandal, I would probably have favored them with Alex Smith as well because Kaepernick brings more athletically uh, but, you know, Alex Smith can do some things in terms of reads, but, you know, he can't do some things in terms of being able to fire over the top. So, so that's, it's not an oversimplification, but th- that's kind of what I'm looking at as well. So then, in your opinion, are the 49ers the most vulnerable home team this weekend? Nah, I'd probably go with the Falcons on that. Falcons. I'd go with the Falcons on that, even though I, I'm, I'm leaning towards chalk and I'm leaning towards four favorites, and I always get yelled at on Twitter when I do that, but <laughs> I do it a lot. One reason I do it a lot is because the favorites are a favorite for a reason, right. um, and, and I would go with the Falcons on that. The Seahawks, you know, some of us are still like kind of learning about what they're capable of, and I think the Falcons are still learning, and I think the Seahawks are still learning what they're capable of, um, and that's not quite the same thing with, with the 49ers. Well, I hope that if you have to go down to um, the Eagles facility in the next couple of days, the traffic <laughs> the traffic isn't too bad from just the frenzy of Flyers fans rushing back to the arena to try to get in line for the first NHL game, you know, because everyone's just got to be so thrilled that hockey's back down in Philly, right? Oh, I'm, a, I'm 100% thrilled. I'm not a hockey fan. I'm thrilled for my hockey fan friends and I'm so for the hockey writers who have been kind of tap dancing around and covering big five basketball in this town uh, and I'm thrilled for the for everyone there and I'm not worried about traffic at all because that press conference when I'm going down there to see that Eagles coach is going to be during the day and those Flyers <laughs> games are going to be at night uh, and I'll make a right instead of a left and uh, it'll be it'll be great to see all the team, team sports in, in America and North America back in action. Thanks for everything today, Mike. We look forward to talking to you again in the future. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right, one last segment on the show today. I want to thank Mike Tanier from SportsOnEarth.com. Really a great website. If you haven't checked it out, try to make a point to uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and our friend at f- friends at Football Nation at Fball Nation. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. And please check out Season 3, Episode 7 of the Sportscasters featuring interviews with Greg Wyshynski concerning the end of the NHL lockout and Lee Jenkins on almost the first half of the NBA season. All right, so that leaves us to an email that's Addressed to Don, and it says, oh boy. Don, what did you think of the Bills' decision to hire Coach Marone, and do you think that they should have waited a little bit longer and interviewed more candidates? All right. I'm going to make this quick because I know your one more thing is going to be touch on this more in depth. So I'm just going to read or paraphrase what I wrote on Facebook because I was seeing a lot of 
kind of dislike toward the move. Uh, maybe people wanted more old school guys like Lovey Smith or somebody. But here's what I said. To everyone complaining about the Bills coach, stop. They got significantly younger and didn't pick up someone else's has-been. This is the first time they can say that since Marv, not the has-been part, or not the, the has-been part, not the youth part. Uh, maybe it doesn't work in the long run, but at the very least, hopefully it represents a sea change in the archaic thinking that has been plaguing the team for over a decade. This and the talk of football analytics that we've been hearing about from guys like Russ Brandon is very exciting to me. I know it doesn't mean anything until they show up on Sundays, but it's a good sign. It's nice that the Bills might actually be ahead of the curve for once. And that's it. I'm, I'm glad to see that they went in a direction that they haven't gone in 100 times before. All right, I'm going to say this. This is one more thing for me, Don. I'll have one last thing this week. Coach Marone was a great hire. Um, I don't know how many people know this. A lot of people are looking at it as a guy who went 25-25 and 25 at Syracuse, where, by the way, he inherited a team that was completely gutted and the cupboards were completely bare. That he did as well as he did there is incredible. But he is also one of the main masterminds in – what has evolved as the Saints offense that you know today. He was the first offensive coordinator of the Saints under Sean Payton. And although he didn't call plays for the Saints, that's obviously always been Payton's job, he was very a very integral part in developing what has become one of the league's best offenses for a long period of time now. It's not like the Saints rolled around in 2006, made an NFC Championship game, and went away. Uh, Marone was a big part of developing that. Players like John Stinchcomb, who's a longtime Saints lineman, said, point out, he's the best coach I've ever had. Uh, Drew Brees has shown his support for Coach Marone. Uh, Sean Payton has shown his support. And these are all people in the league that I respect a lot. And I would have hated for the Bills to hire someone like Lovey Smith or someone that just is emotionless and, and almost comes off as just too stone-faced. And he, the Bills needed to get younger. They needed something fresh. And I just think that this is the way to go. This could be the next Sean Payton. This could be the next Mike Tomlin. And I commend the Bills for finally, maybe after 13 years of doing everything wrong, doing something right. One last thing for me. Last night's game, we've already talked about it, was kind of a snooze fest, but a few guys might have taken some interest in that, and that's guys like Jeff Passan, Mark Cuban, and guys that are interested in killing the BCS. Uh, the BCS is a problem in that you're taking teams that don't play similar schedules necessarily, and you're trying to add numeric values to the strength of their schedule, and you come out with this formula, and it's supposed to spit out the best teams. Well, that doesn't always work because of the different schedules teams play and how teams are at different points in the season and all that type of thing. That's the subjective part of it. There's also an object, objective part of that that's supposed to be the voters, the, the coaches and the AP. And it's definitely not going to work when they don't put any thought into it. Especially the coaches. Right. Everyone, or not everyone, but a large majority of the people voted Notre Dame the number one team in the country. That means that they... Vote, put their vote behind the fact that that was the best team in the country we saw last night, and that game wasn't close. Vegas knew it. The experts, if you drill them on it, mostly probably would have picked Alabama. If you gave them no points, no point spread, you gave them straight odds, I bet you 70 or more percent of the, the that money is going to fall on Alabama. Yet why were all these people picking them as the number one team in the country? To some extent, your record should matter. 
uh, a team like Alabama shouldn't be allowed to play lousy and go nine and four or something like that and automatically be a number one team because of their roster. But that said, there were other one loss teams out there that deserved to be in there probably more than Notre Dame. If after watching that game, teams like Georgia probably would have won that game. Uh, or competed anyway. Right. I mean, they would have beaten Notre Dame, I mean, oh, okay. since Notre Dame was the one. I would love someone to take the task, the voters, for this whole thing. Because as much as the BCS is beat up on, and as much as it's a flawed system, it's only made worse by the fact that the voters don't actually put any thought into their votes. Uh-huh.